Hey everyone, welcome to Tales from the Pros. This is Michael Giorgio, your host and co-founder of Imagine Ovation. My special guest with me here today is a highly accomplished alpinist and has climbed the world over, including Mount Everest, and established himself as one of the world's leading mountain sports photographers. His high level of expertise has made him one of the most sought after creatives in the industry and seen him work with the world's top athletes for over a decade. Embarking on pioneering ascents to visually document expeditions in the Alps, Patagonia, Alaska, and the Himalayas, some of his clients include global brands such as the North Face, Red Bull, Google, Adidas, Patagonia, and more. A keen interest in modern technology, this creative adventurer just released the first ever high-resolution virtual reality Mount Everest film following a Nepalese climber attempting a no-bottled oxygen ascent of the mountain, a story that's never shot before, known as Everest Virtual Reality. This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their stories of inspiration, struggles, and successes. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. Please welcome Jonathan Griffith. John, thanks for being here today, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. God, when you put my life like that, it almost sounds really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. I'm supposed to make it exciting. No, no, no. It is exciting. I, I think I think what you've done, John, is is great, man. It's very inspiring. It's um you're the well, the first um essentially the first event. I mean, I'm going to call you an adventure if that's okay. So the first really adventure photographer I've interviewed, um, and I know you're involved in, in obviously a lot of business and things like that. We'll talk about that in the podcast, but it, it's very exciting. You're you're definitely a unique interviewee. You're not just a typical, um, you know, you're, you own a business and and um, you know you're in marketing and sales and or you're a you're a, a New York Times bestselling author. You know, I interview a lot of those guys. Um, but this is pretty cool that I, I'm able to to get the opportunity to uh, to have you on the show. So so thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, John, just to kind of get the episode started, what really got you into alpine photography and being able to work with some of the world's largest brands? Kind of tell us your journey. So, I started climbing when I was at university, uh, which is college for you guys in the States, and I started taking photos when I was up in the mountains because I was seeing these, you know, amazing views, you know, whether it be a sunrise and say 4,000 meters or very steep climbing, I was, I was seeing these incredible locations and views that all my friends and family back home had never really seen before. So I started taking photos just to show literally like my parents what it was like to be up there because uh, they all thought I was you know, a little bit crazy for pursuing this slightly mad sport. Um, <laughs> and so I started like that and uh, I just got really obsessed in the idea of catching humans in extraordinary places. And when I was in my third year of university, my mother passed away from cancer and it sort of forced me to take a year off afterwards before I was going to go back to London and get a, a proper job, you know, whether, whether it be banking or an accountant or something like that. And I thought, well, before I do that, I'm just going to go to, to the French Alps for a year just to let my mind just calm down, you know, after finishing university and everything else like that. Right. And... Uh, yeah, like a year later, I was just so in love with what I was doing as a photographer and everything else out here that I, I ended up staying. I mean, basically, it's it's an amazing place to live in Chamonix in the French Alps. And 
they seemed to have made a, a work or a job out of it. And it felt a bit criminal not to pursue it if I can make it work. And I ended up working with a lot of the outdoor brands and that led me to working with a lot of the you know, top climbers out here. And my real passion was was to, it's hard to explain really, but I, when I first started taking photos, I was seeing a lot of the same you know photos and they would tend to be in very easy to access locations and next door to you know chairlifts and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, what really interests me is showing the places that you know the humans rarely go to, and that, of course, is very hard climbs. For example, very remote mountains, and of course, through that you end up having to do an awful lot of climbing and get quite good at it yourself. So I dedicated a lot of my life to climbing as much as I could, just so I could get myself and my camera uh, to these locations. And to that end, I've, as you mentioned, the intro, I've climbed a little bit everywhere in the world. Um, yeah, it's been quite a fun adventure to say the least. Did you? I mean, what what kind of athletes do you film? Is it more snowboarders, skiers, or is it all different? I mean, is it just anyone that it kind of matches the criteria of being in the alpine? Yeah, it's definitely more leaning towards climbing, you know, alpine climbing. I okay. I skied a lot all of my life, and I've done a lot of ski shoots and everything else. But, I mean, the story is really important for me. So if someone comes to me for a photo shoot and they've got a really interesting story to shoot, uh, whether it be skiing or alpine climbing, I'll always take the bait because it's just interesting to shoot something different. But for me, it's, yeah, I definitely more on alpine climbing. I, I'm not sure exactly why, to be honest with you. I just find it, I find it not quite more mysterious, but it's just, it's so much harder to access some of these locations that alpine climbers get to. And that for me is really interesting in my work because skiing, you know, people ski steeper and steeper stuff, but it's kind of just a ski shot at the end of the day, in a way. And climbing is such a a brutal multi-day adventure. And I love capturing that story. You know, it's, you're often on these big mountains for days and days and days at a time. And so there's a lot of human story behind each climb uh, compared to, say, a ski descent, which is over a lot faster. And I think it just interests me, interests me more uh, to capture that, to be honest with you. What does it really take to be an alpine climber? Is it the, I, I mean, I know different fitness levels, but do these, do these guys, I mean, such as yourself being a climber, what's the, the fitness level have to be at? You know, I mean, I, we can talk about Everest in, in a few minutes, but just to even climb a decent sized mountain, even, even just in the Alps, right? I mean, you're talking about, um, a lot of meters here. It's not, they're not, they're not small little mountains. No, for sure. I mean, and everyone's fitness level uh, changes. And when I first started climbing out here, I thought the mountains out here were huge. And, you know, the more and more miles you get in under your belt, the better you are at just endurance. Because alpine climbing is it's about, yeah, it's about endurance, really. We're not sprinting up these mountains, you know, we're, we're going at a pretty fast pace. But you've sometimes got to maintain that pace for thousands and thousands of meters. So it's a marathon, not a sprint. Right? Yeah, it really yeah. is. And yeah. when I was getting really getting into, say, Himalayan climbing, I started to change, you know, I started to train a lot more and, and to be a bit more specific about my style of training. And to be honest with you, every single objective you have, you have to change your training. That's why alpine climbing, in a way, is such a complicated sport, because you know, you, you can break down climbing into its individual specific uh, areas such as rock climbing or ice climbing or mixed climbing, and you can train for these exact things. But alpine climbing, you have to do all of that stuff 
uh, and be able to have huge amounts of fitness and endurance and be able to ski and everything. So you have to be a jack of all trades, but also very strong at all of them. So in a way, it's quite hard because, for example, if you're if you're a rock climber, you're concentrating on, say, just like a, a 60 foot bit of rock. OK, so it's very high intensity, powerful uh, sport. But as an alpinist, you want to also train the exact opposite end, which is long, slow endurance. So trying to train everything at once is almost impossible because the body doesn't work that way. So it's, yeah, it's a constant battle in a way, trying to stay fit for everything, to be honest with you. Yeah, sounds sounds crazy, uh, crazy difficult. <laughs> Just, you know, I mean, because you, you think about a lot of, you know, I, I used to play um, soccer, more uh, competitive soccer. And uh, I, I know some players that, to get in really good shape, they would run in the mountains and even boxers. Cause I used to box as well. And a lot of boxers, they, they do that, you know, um, even around the world, like even some uh, very popular French boxers that they would go to the Alps and they would run in the mountains, um, just because of the altitude and it, it got their fitness to such a high level. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is great fun running the mountains. Don't get me wrong. It's just, I guess what makes Alpine climbing so hard to train for, but also such an interesting sport is that, you know, you can have these these routes which are, which don't involve much climbing as such. You're not really using your hands so much. Um, and you can you can run, as you say, or go at a very fast pace up these enormous mountains and you can cover thousands of feet of ascent in a day. And it's just, it's incredible. Uh, but then you can do the exact opposite and you can find yourself on a very, very steep face in winter, for example, where you're inching your way up it for days and days on end. And you might just be covering a couple of hundred feet in a full day. So... It's, you know, yeah. it's two massive extremes, but that's why I love the sport so much. You can do, you know, you can do either either end of it or you can do something in the middle. It's just it's just endless opportunities for having lots of fun, basically, and a lot of suffering as well. And, and John, you know, just I know you touched on this a little bit in the first question, but how did you really find your purpose in being a, a quote unquote creative? Was there a point in your life that you fell, and I, I think you did touch on this briefly, but was there like a point in time in your life where you felt, you know what, this is it. This is what I meant to do. This is what I meant to be. Uh, or, or was it just more of your passion you, and you just essentially rode with it? That's a good question. Um, I never thought about it before like that. I think, you know, it just, at the side, it was just my passion. I just rode with it, as you say, because I was young and I was climbing a lot out here and it was funding uh, my climbing basically because I it allowed me to go climbing as well because it, it ended up being my job just being in the mountains and taking photos of people but I you know if I'm in the mountains I don't have a camera with me which is never um, I would feel naked almost um, for me going climbing is just as much as not really a creative process but for me it's just as much of a photography process or filming process is the actual climb you know when I go climbing I'm always looking out for spots where I know that'll be a good shot or good location I'll often research every single route I do beforehand and I look on google earth and I see how the sun and the moon for nighttime changes over the course of the day so I know where I want to be on on each climb for certain parts of the day for these exact shots so there's so much research that goes in beforehand and I yeah I just love it to be honest with you I think if I did a huge alpine route and I didn't come away with a good photo, I'd, I'd be a bit disappointed, which is crazy because most people are just super excited to go and climb it. But I, I need a bit of both, actually, for it to be a great experience. And, you know, I mean, I know, uh, I mean, you, you did climb Everest, right? So did you, you summited Everest or did you just climb it? Did you make, make it to like the, 
uh, I know there's different camps. There's how many camps? Four or five? Is uh, that four right? camps, yeah. Four camps. It, it, did you were, were you able to reach the summit on Everest? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Just once or twice? Uh, just once. Once. Wow, that's. So tell me a little bit about that. How was the, what did that process look like? What's the kind of from uh, just from from preparing for it, training for it? Um, I know you didn't just go for climbing; you went for a few other reasons. But tell me a little bit about that process on Everest. Well, Everest is a little bit misunderstood. I think it's you know because it's Mount Everest, everyone assumes it's the hardest climb in the world. Um, right. But the reality of Everest is that it's not actually the hardest climb in the world. What? Okay, that's not quite fair because you could always end up doing a route or line up the mountain that is probably incredibly hard. But the normal route, which is what everybody does and what you hear about in the press every single year, is it's not particularly hard because the Sherpas do all the work for you. You know, they put a fixed rope all the way from base camp to the summit. So there's a huge rope all the way they put in every single year which means there's always a track, so you don't have to break trail through loads of snow. Having a rope obviously means that you don't have to climb because you can clip in, it's called a juma, which is, it's an ascender, so it basically grips onto the rope, right? So you're just always gripped onto the rope, so you're not really going to fall if you do slip. Um, mm -hmm. And it means you move much faster. And also the Sherpas, they put the camps up for you, they carry a lot of the gear, they do all the work so that, you know, you can get up high and they carry the oxygen for you as well. Um, and then also on Everest, it's become accepted practice to use bottled oxygen, um, which is sort of considered cheating in the climbing world because the whole difficulty in Everest lies in its altitude. And because it's so high, that means there's very little oxygen uh, content in the air. So you know, that's kind of the challenge of Everest, right, from a climber's point of view, is to do it without bottle oxygen, because that is the challenge that Mother Nature presents to us on that mountain. But we circumvent it by by using bottle oxygen. So Everest as a climb, to be honest, is not particularly challenging. And it sounds terrible when you say something like that, because obviously a lot of people find it incredibly challenging. Um, but that is the yeah. reality of Everest. And, you know, it doesn't mean that it's a walk in the park, right? It doesn't mean that you can just turn up and just walk your way up it. A lot of people fail. Um, you know, it's still, of course, a physical challenge. But compared to what uh, what climbers really set out to do in the Himalayas, for example, it's it's very different. Um, just purely because, as I say, it's 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 set up, you know, for clients to be able to go up the mountain. Normally, as a climber, we have um, we try and do a style called Alpine style, which means that we just leave base camp with you and your friend, uh, you and your climbing partner, and you leave with your backpack. In your backpack, there's all your equipment. There's a tent, you know, sleeping bags, food, all your climbing equipment. And you just, you know, you go up the mountain and back down again, and you don't leave anything on the mountain. And that's the purest style. And Everest is the exact opposite in the way that, you know, there's a rope all the way set up from base camp to the top, like I said, and you have Sherpas helping you all the way, and you're using oxygen. So it's a completely different style. Um, we call that expedition style. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I've heard that before that Everest isn't uh, the, the perception of Everest is um, it's definitely a little construed, it's a little skewed. Um, it, it's, you know, because you always hear about people dying on Everest. But I mean, any climb, right, even Mount, even Denali, um, which is is uh, is not um, is not nowhere near as tall a mountain as as Everest, um, you know, Denali. Um, 
I heard is is also some people say that uh, that is hard as well, right? But I, I don't know. I'm not a climber. Um, I heard like K2 is very hard. I heard that's harder than Everest or Mount Lhotse. Is that right? Yeah, well, Lhotse isn't as hard because Lhotse shares, you know, 80% of the Everest route and it's also fixed. Denali mm. is um, often said to be just as hard as Everest. Um, it's very different. Denali is quite high because it's in northern latitude, which means that even though it's only something like 6,200 meters, it feels more like 7,000 meters. So it feels quite high. But also on Denali, it's, it's brutally cold like really cold and you have to live in snow for the full few weeks that you're out there, which is really hard work on the body and for you. And you have to carry all your stuff up and down the mountain on sledges, which is a lot, a lot of weight. So yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot more brutal, like grunt work that happens on Denali that doesn't happen on Everest, for example. So yeah, they're all a bit different. I, I would say having been on Denali, having climbed Denali, that Everest is harder though, just because you have to deal with the altitude, which is, which is quite a tough one. And what about K2? I haven't climbed K2, but, you know, K2, they do the same thing to every year. They put ropes down it. So it's not quite as easy as Everest because it is generally steeper in its gradient, but it's the same style. You know, people use oxygen. Mm. People have Sherpas there. They have a fixed rope on it. Um, so, and it's not to say, not every ascent is done like that, of course, um, but the vast majority of ascents are done like that. So it's, you know, it's, you're effectively bringing the mountain down to your level a bit when you do that. And there's nothing, there's nothing hugely wrong with that. It's just a, a question of style and ethics, right? And on Everest, I know there's the, the dead zone, right? Where you can only be there uh, for what, maximum 24 hours. Is that right? Uh, well, it depends. Some people like half an hour, some people a couple of days. Wow. <laughs> wow. So is it, what's it like being on that altitude? Uh, is it, I know you have the mask or so, I know some people probably don't do it with oxygen. Um, but with oxygen, how difficult is it? I mean, is it just deep, slow breaths? Is it, is it, um, I mean, is it more the fear that you can fall or is it like, what kind of goes through your mind at that, at that, point or is it just more excitement you're like oh my god i'm almost at the summit this is my dream you know yeah i you know when you're on oxygen it's a completely different game to climbing without oxygen i think you know i think there's been about four and a half thousand ascents of everest with oxygen and under 200 people have climbed it without oxygen right so the difference is enormous i mean more people have been into space than have climbed everest without oxygen so it's it's really legitimately very hard to do it without oxygen. So, you know, I was using oxygen uh, high up on the mountain and I found it um, like absolutely fine. You know, I felt normal. I could think um, I could, you know, pretty much run about to be honest with the altitude. I felt actually very strong on oxygen. But I know that if you're not on oxygen, it, it's so it's so mind numbing. It's crazy. I mean, you know, we rely on oxygen, not only for our brain to function, but to keep us warm, right? It's fuel. We burn it to keep mm -hmm. our, our muscles moving. And the problem on Everest is the higher you go up, the less oxygen there is, right? So you end up slowing down um, because there's not enough oxygen to burn to your muscles. But of course, then that leads to a vicious cycle whereby you're not moving your muscles fast enough to stay warm. You start to get really cold and, you know, when you start to get really cold, everything starts to shut down. Your brain is already half shut down anyway from the lack of oxygen. Um, so it's really hard to watch. You know, my the guy that I was shooting um, was a guy called uh, Tenji. And he was 
trying it without oxygen. So I got to see it up close the whole way up. And it's, oh, it's brutal, honestly. Like it's, I, I'm just standing there next to him, shooting him. And I'm feeling totally fine, like warm and very happy to be up there and think about how to shoot VR up at altitude. And this guy's taking like 10 steps and stopping for five minutes or so up high. I mean, it's unbelievable. And this guy's actually already climbed Everest without oxygen before. So it's not like it was his first time. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's so hard to describe the difference between the two, you know. And, and the, the danger of being up in the death zone without oxygen is that you can push it too far because, you know, you have to get down, right? And the problem with the lack of oxygen is that, is that your body can just shut down so fast. So normally, you know, we can get tired in the mountains. You're like, well, I'm getting quite tired now. I'll just start heading down. And then you just start heading down. But the problem with the lack of oxygen up high is that it literally starts to, to kill your cells because that's why it's called the death zone, right? There's so little oxygen in the air that your body literally starts to die. So if you don't know when to turn around fast enough, you could have you could have turned around already, but you will still just give up on the way down because your body has already gone past the zone that it can't recover from. That's why it's so dangerous. Um, it's yeah, like I said, it's it's actually really quite serious climbing without. Like, absolute full respect to people that have done it like that. Oh, I can't. I don't understand how people could do it without oxygen. I. Uh... It just sounds even, it sounds so hard even with oxygen, you know, but like I said, I think a lot of the perception is a little, um, you know, if you take a a very fit athlete, right. And you, and they train for Everest, they can probably climb Everest, right. If they go, if they go the safe route. Yeah, exactly. And on oxygen, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, any climber that I know, um, which is a lot of climbers since that's been, you know, most of my life would be able to climb Everest perfectly happily and fine on bottled oxygen. But only a couple of people that I know would be capable of climbing it without, just to put it in perspective. And these, you know, they're all fit guys, right? They're all full-time climbers. But the difference between with and without is just humongous. And also you have to really want to do it without because the amount of suffering you go through uh, is just crazy. You know, it's such a mental game trying to climb without oxygen. It's, yeah, it's it's really impressive, honestly. Mm. And what about like the pain, the pain on your body, the, your muscles and just, do you feel, or are you, like you said, you feel completely fine. You felt good. I mean, it was like you working out going on a run. I mean, what was the feeling of your body after you reached the summit or, or how about when you got down, you, when you got back to base camp after you reached the summit? Um, I felt fine to be honest with you. Um, you know, it's not, the days on Everest are certainly no bigger than days that I'm used to and that I've done all around the world for years on end. So as far as physical exertion goes, it's not, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, if that makes Your sense. body was used to it. You think, is that why? Cause you've climbed so many times you you feel like for me, if I went, if I've never climbed before in my life and I got really good shape, but I still have never climbed. And then I went to Everest, would it even be possible for me to, 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 um, make it to one of the you know the camp one camp two yeah for sure I think I think the difference of course as you sort of mentioned there slightly was you know I've got so much experience of being in the mountains right so it's just that it's just the mileage that I have of my body's just used to climbing up thousands of meters and back down again if it needs to whilst even if you got very fit your body's not necessarily used to those movements and the muscle groups aren't used to it so you'd be able to get to camp one and camp two, fine, um, on normal fitness. I think what shuts people down is higher up. And I think it's a combination of mental and physical 
issues because you know a lot of people will come to Everest you know for a lot of people the crazy thing is Everest is often one of their first mountains to actually climb it's it's kind of crazy to say but it, it's, wow. it's the way it is so they get up very high on Everest and they're like they're totally overwhelmed by where they are because they're suddenly very high up on these very big mountains and of course they've never seen this before so they kind of you know it's not they necessarily freak out but they obviously do freak out a bit because they're not used to exposure and or you know just being up there and you mean like cliffs did you ever see cliffs and all that as well no there's there's a short section between you know around the famous hillary step that's a little bit exposed but it's not you know it's not like i don't know it doesn't feel like gut-wrenchingly exposed but what yeah. i mean is a lot of people get to there and for them they it, it feels gut-wrenchingly exposed which because they're not used to it which i completely understand and then their brain is in hyperdrive because they're really stressed about being in this environment and of course that uses up even more and you know when I, when we're stressed of course we we burn loads of energy right or it's mentally very fatiguing so there's a lot of factors that contribute to people you know getting very tired up high it's not just the fact that they have to climb Everest physically it's also the mental thing and, and of course if you're used to climbing then mentally it's the stress is taken out of the equation because as I mentioned earlier there's this fixed rope so you don't have to worry about getting up and down um, because you know you just hold on to this enormous rope so yeah that's taken out of the equation um, but yeah it, it's just certainly not easy of course getting to the top but you know, as I said earlier the Sherpas have have certainly made it a huge amount easier than it should be. And it's probably a, a pain in the butt dealing with the long lines, right? I heard that was a big hurdle. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, when we went to shoot this virtuality film, I actually waited until everyone had left Everest because, I mean, partly just for me, I just didn't want to be on the mountain when there was people there. But also, you know, obviously we're shooting in virtuality. It's 360-degree capture, and I certainly didn't want to shoot lines of people trying to get to the summit. So... We actually had the whole mountain to ourselves and we went up, which was quite nice. Amazing. So just jumping a little bit here, uh, John, how do you handle and manage all of your tasks, you know, your goals, your, your business tasks, you're traveling all the time, right? So how do you have time to manage all of that? And even just your editing or do you have people that help you or are you just doing it all yourself? Oh. And not a lot of sleep, to be honest with you. I think it's the same for most people in my in my job, in my industry. Um, not a yeah, lot of what? Not a lot of sleep, to be honest yeah. with you. It's, yeah. yeah, you just work around the clock. It's crazy. Uh, I think you get used to the jet lag after a while, but it's it's tiring, especially when you throw sort of mountain days in between the jet lag because the body then gets tired. And I'm, I'm getting old now. I'm 36. So it's not like when I'm in my late 20s and I could just bounce back all the time. Um so yeah, it's honestly, it's really hard to manage all of it. Um, and I have clients from completely different time zones as well. So I'm often on calls, you know, at totally ridiculous hours of the night as well. Um, but I, I don't know, to be honest with you, I really love it. I'm a complete control freak in my work. So I like to do it all myself. And obviously I have, you know, I have other employees, um, but I, I always like to make sure that I'm in touch with all the major things happening. And on and as many calls as I can possibly get on. But I, I love that. Especially with the larger brands you work with, right? Especially some of your larger clients. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, do, I, I find it kind of hard to delegate just because I, I find that I need to know all the information. It's a bit of a, of a weakness of mine. And I can still delegate the work, but I still find I have to catch up on what's going on all the time because 
yeah, I like to know what, what all the moving parts are doing basically all the time. Yeah. I'm a little like that too. Sometimes it's hard of letting go. You're so passionate about something. It's a little, um, it's, it's tough to, I hate to say this, but it's tough to trust other people, even your employees to take some of that work, especially when it's so important to you, because you know, it's difficult to, it's difficult to delegate those very critical and important tasks when you know you can do it the best yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, it is a weakness because you, you know, everyone, everyone has like good ideas, you know, so you have to rely on other people having good ideas. And of course, other people have great ideas. But when you try and manage everything, control everything, you can often smother that. Um, but yeah, as you say, you just, you always want to make sure that you've know, been done the best of your abilities at the end of the day. So it's, it is quite hard. Um, but I love that side of my job as well. Like I love shooting in the mountains. Um, and the organization that it takes to shoot in the mountains is really complicated. And then I love coming back to my office and and then doing all the the admin and the business side of it all. Um, I, I love the whole thing. I just find the whole thing so challenging from start to finish. It's awesome. So cool. So cool. And how were you able to get attention, John, from companies, you know, your clients such as North Face, Google, Discovery Channel? How did you get their attention? You know, how, did they come to you or did you reach out to them to do photography or filming or, or what kind of work did you do for some of these brands and how did you get their attention? Um, I mainly, you know, this is all back in the day pre-social media, right? So trying to get people's attention is a lot different to how we do it nowadays. Yeah. Um, so, you know, nowadays it's so easy. It's crazy with social media, just attention everywhere. Um, so back then, the way that I got my clients really was was shooting or climbing with some of the world's best alpinists um and one of them for example was a guy called julie steck who uh, features in this film and he you know was one of the best alpinists that has ever lived and we quickly formed a very good uh, friendship and, and working friendship um basically because he climbs so incredibly hard um that i just really want to capture that all the time because it was just incredible watching a, a human being push push the limits all the time. And he was really interested in working with me because, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to capture all the time. So we had this fantastic working relationship. Um, and then, you know, if you end up working with the best athletes in your sport, they're the ones that get the call from, you know, Nat Geo or whoever it might be to feature in films or photographs, obviously. So that's kind of how I got the shoe in there. And then, you know, as long as you don't screw up a shoot, you always hope you'll get repeat work, right? So that was the idea. Yeah. And wh what did you feel was your, um, what was, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. I'll just say what's one of your favorite projects that you worked on for a client? Was it the North Face? That North Face commercial was cool. I don't even know. If, was that a commercial or what was that? I saw it on YouTube. Yeah, um, that was kind of a commercial. We we climbed an unclimbed mountain out in Pakistan. Um, so it was all part of that. It was a pretty cool film that we made about it all. And what do you think was your one of your favorite projects, coolest projects, and where did you shoot? Where did you shoot it? Oh, that is a really tough question. Um, you know, I think honestly, it probably has to be this virtuality project on Everest, purely because it's virtuality, and nothing gets me as excited as shooting VR right now. It's just, it's so cool. It's so complex creatively. Um, I I love it so much. So. Um, yeah, it's probably going to have to be that project, even though it was on Everest. I can think of a million more exciting climbs I've done. Um, 
to be honest. But as far as projects go, and from start to finish as well, you know, it was a three-year-long project, and I spent a year going around the world meeting potential investors and pitching it like I mean it was a crazy year and a bit of pitching trying to get people on board because VR is such a nascent industry that when you're trying to pitch such a crazy story people are trying to work out first whether they can monetize it and whether or not it's even possible so it was a really hard project to to try and get off the ground especially as you know I pretty much worked most of my life uh, with outdoor companies and something to do with the outdoor whilst this of course was way beyond the budget so I was having to have meetings at Facebook and at Google and at HTC and uh, with tons of Hollywood production companies wow. and IMAX and I mean it's just crazy the amount of traveling I did around the world just to to try and get investors so I, I love that whole side of it you know I put on a suit and got on a plane and just flew around the world and started pitching so and, you know, then that eventually brought me to Everest and shooting this virtuality film, which was so exciting to shoot creatively. And yeah, the whole project. Which is, which is what I really want to talk about. And you actually, I mean, you got into the question, which is perfect, because this is my next question is about the Everest virtual reality. You know, I mean, that's how I connected with you on LinkedIn. I saw I saw your post and I, you know, I did research on you and I thought I really liked your story and what you were doing. And I was like, all right, I, I definitely got to. I got to interview this guy. This this is really really cool because I love VR. You know, I, t- I told you my company does, but we build virtual reality uh, apps and do AI and and um, all types of different development. So it's really cool, man. I'm 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 loving it, and I think it's I think VR and a you know you know art- artificial intelligence is highly in trend right now. All these emerging technologies are just um, are skyrocketing, and they're just innovating every single day and. It's hard to keep up with it, to be honest, but what you're doing is very different. And I've never heard of, I've heard of people filming on Everest and these mountains, but never doing anything for what you're doing. Uh, and I know you got into, you know, Ken Film Festival as well. So kind of tell me about your overall experience um, on that film and, and what inspired you to create it and to start it. So I did a uh, Google... 360 photo shoot on Mont Blanc, which is our highest mountain out in Europe, about, ooh, I think that must be about four, I don't know, like five years ago now, quite a long time ago. And we were shooting these 360 panos, right? So just photos, and it was all manual back then, so we didn't have 360 cameras. Um, and I went to Google headquarters when we launched it, um, and that was the first time I ever put on a VR headset, and it was the Google Cardboard. They just put it on me just to see what I thought. And I just thought it was absolutely incredible. You know, the the sample footage they had obviously was nothing particularly exciting, but it was just the idea of being completely immersed in 3D. I'd never seen it before. It was so cool. Um, And I was, you know, as I said earlier in this podcast, you know, my whole passion was to really bring people to these locations that climbers get to, right? And I've been doing that through film work and photography. And for the first time ever, I put on a headset and I was completely immersed in that environment. And so obviously for me, it was, you know, I was like, this is exactly what I want to shoot for the rest of my career. I mean, it's so powerful VR. So I started to think about how I could do a, a mountain or climbing based virtuality film. And of course, it had to be Everest, right? Because it's, it's, it's so expensive shooting virtuality. And the market is so small that we're not ready for really niche films yet, you know, so I had to make it about the mm-hmm. most famous peak we had, the, the peak that would draw people to the film and also when i think about virtuality 
you know, the whole point is to bring people to experiences that otherwise they can't have. Um, and when, you know, you talk to people about things they would be interested in doing, but they'll probably never get around to do it. People will mention, well, I don't know, space or going to see the Titanic or going to the top of Everest. So it was kind of a bit of an obvious choice, really. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of what led me to trying to shoot Everest. And I, I want to go and do this story with my friend Yuli Steck uh, to climb both Mount Everest and this other big mountain next to it called Mount Lotsi, which is the fifth highest mountain in the world. And he wanted to climb both of them without the use of bottled oxygen, which has never been done before because um, it requires an unbelievably huge amount of time up in this death zone that we were talking about earlier. Um, but unfortunately, he slipped on a nearby mountain while he was acclimatizing uh, for it. Uh, so we, I went back the following year with his Nepalese climbing partner, which is a young Sherpa called Sherpa Tenji, to try and attempt to finish off, you know, what Yuli had started, what we had started, uh, sort of media-wise, but what he had started climbing-wise. So that was the whole VR story. Um, but I wanted to shoot it, you know, in as high resolution as possible. So we weren't just, you know, hand-holding VR units. We were shooting an 8K by 8K 3D virtuality with external 360 audio i mean the oh, whole wow. shebang it was yeah. massively complicated but when i was looking at certain virtuality films i realized that the only way to make virtuality is to do it unbelievably well because as soon as something looks a bit off in virtuality the viewer is thrown back out of it straight away and for me the whole point is to make them believe they're there right like really believe they're there and for right, that everything right. has to be perfect in the scene otherwise you know as soon as there's a glitch then they're thrown out of it so the whole production was was really complicated and it was certainly a lot more complicated that we're trying this this different style of ascent you know if tenji was just on oxygen and we were doing it with loads of sherpas helping us and the usual thing of course it'd be a very different uh a very different production it'd be much easier to do but we wanted to shoot a legitimate story on everest um and of course, we still had Sherpas helping us, don't get me wrong. Um, and I was an option, as I said earlier, I think. Um, so it was never 100% clean ascent. But, you know, I could never, ever shoot virtuality up high, not on option. So we compromised where we had to. <laughs> and is is uh, this film or the documentary, is it? So I know you were t uh, kind of going back a little bit in regards to um, pitching. You're funding investors, I guess, to uh, to fund the project. What what value? Because I I don't know the whole. I mean, I don't know how you were pitching. I don't know what you would tell them. But how, what did the investors find valuable in the documentary in terms of using it? Uh, did they feel it would? How did they feel it was going to provide value to making money off of it? Was it just because of a documentary, like they're monetizing it from from people watching the film, or was it is it going to be used for other purposes? Is what I'm asking. Yeah, it was always a bit of a complex one trying to work that out because the immediate return on investment definitely wasn't clear, especially a few years ago. You know, when we still had absolutely no idea how we we're going to monetize virtuality. And nowadays, it's the path has become a lot clearer, even though we're still trying to work out how to monetize it. But nowadays, you know, we have VR theaters and cinemas and it's in museums. You know, it's the distribution channels are now set up and they weren't back then. So people didn't know what we we're going to do uh, about yeah, about how to make money back from it. So a lot of it was just about trying to pitch it and say, look, you know, a lot of these companies take, for example, Oculus um, and Facebook, you know, they they put in two billion dollars or whatever into it, and a, a lot of these 
it's kind of a weird industry, virtuality, because technology was just the the growth of the technology behind it was crazy fast and really impressive, but the content was lagging so much. So people at trade shows were showing off these high resolution, exciting headsets, right? But they had nothing to actually show on them that would really show the technology really well. And so for me, it was about trying to pitch that. I was trying to say to companies, well, look, well, you're trying to sell this hardware and it's very impressive hardware, but none of the content that you have does justice to the hardware at all. And here we are, we can go and shoot an Everest high resolution virtual reality film and do, you know, a short thing, for example, for trade shows or whatever. But effectively, it'll really do justice yeah, to the hardware that everyone's uh, been creating. But it was, yeah, it was for sure a really hard pitch because shooting on Everest just by itself was incredibly expensive. You know, VR alone is very expensive in post-production, um, but Everest is crazy expensive just to go and climb uh, with permits and everything else. So it certainly wasn't a, a cheap shoot, to put it that way. And it's, I, I love what you said about um, the content in trying to increase the the content experience when for example, when uh, Facebook is is selling Oculus, right? There's nothing really to to demo, so you you can you can make a lot of money from this from this um, even just this footage, right? Because this content that you have, because you can monetize the you can you can create uh, different um, um, you know even subscription plans and things like that for to to give to send demos to different brands so they can use it for their VR headsets. Yeah, totally. And now that, you know, we our first edit that we've made is this 11 minutes edit, and we made it for location-based entertainment. Uh, we're also working on a much longer edit, but of course, you know, the first one we wanted out the door was one that we could really monetize. And for that, it was about creating something short and sweet for fast turnover. So, and Everest works so well, right? You can put it in museums, or you could put it at trade shows, or you could put it at music festivals. It just works so well in all different areas. Um, so the licensing for that has been really good. And I think VR is, is quite good for licensing because you can also supplement it heavily with non-VR, so dome projection sales. And for that, you know, you're thinking planetariums and all this kind of stuff. And that's a very old industry that's very well established um, and that are always looking for interesting high-resolution uh, material because, to be honest with you, no one's really shot 8K uh, footage like this before you know so most of our um, sales our licensing sales have been or the, the high value ones anyway have been to these locations because you have a big dome that seats hundreds of people at a time you know it, it just makes sense so there's definitely lots of different ways to distribute it and then when we launched it one of our biggest interests just out the blue uh, ended up being for corporate events <laughs> so you know because these huge corporate events uh, companies are always looking out for interesting new, uh, you know, like unique experiences to have a, you know, whether it be a big bank company or whatever. And so we got a huge amount of requests from from actual companies, but also corporate event companies, just to have headsets there, uh, whether it be ten or twenty or thirty at a time. Just um, so, yeah, it's been really interesting trying to find out how to monetize it. It's not been a huge difficulty, to be honest with you. I think partly because what we shot is such good quality but also Everest always you know people are just always interested in Everest um, at the end of the day that's what's so good about it it almost sells itself really um, it does very very capturing yeah yeah so it's it just got being, my attention yeah yeah it's just so you know you say Everest VR and people are already like oh that sounds interesting to see that in virtuality <laughs> and then 
the next step is just get, to get them to watch this film in a headset. And every single time I've had someone watch it, you know, they're almost speechless afterwards because it's, it's yeah, which is always a good sign, right? So <laughs> oh, it's yeah. been really cool. And what do you, do you have any future plans for VR in general, not just the film, but just VR and, and even uh, Alpine photography? Yeah, everything now. You know, I do still do a lot of Alpine photography, but I don't seek the work out anymore. If someone comes to me with an interesting project and it interests me, I'll definitely hop on board. But VR has become my new passion, and that's what I seek for work. You know, so we're working on a on a longer 30-minute or three-episode series, which covers a lot of climbing in Chamonix, which is unbelievably cool to shoot because Everest, as I mentioned earlier, doesn't have much steep climbing. But, of course, Chamonix is this, this the heart of alpinism out here. And, um, and we've been shooting some incredibly steep skiing and steep climbing. Uh, and so far, that part of the film is just it's incredible. And just trying to shoot it, you know, it's been so fantastically fun and complicated to set up each shot. It's, oh, it's so cool. Um, and then we're, I've got some other projects, but I guess I'm not allowed to say, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, no, no but worries. yeah, it, like I said, everything now is just to shoot more and more VR. I just, every time I get a shot and I see it and I'm like, Oh, there's definitely a way we could slightly improve on the angle and, and the user experience and feel of it. And oh, it's just, as you can probably tell, I'm quite excited by it all. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are. I can, I can tell. There, there's a, <laughs> that's, that's great. I mean, it's, you, lo- you got to love what you do, passionate. If, if, you, if you're passionate, love what you do, you work hard, there's, you know, I mean, success is, is, is around the corner. It just uh, takes a lot, of, a lot of patience. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I understand the process. But um, there was a guy that I, I, I don't know if you know him, but he shot a, a documentary called Nehru. Meru, yeah. Meru, Meru, yeah, and I've been trying to actually contact him, but I couldn't get in touch with him. I'm surprised he hasn't done any VR. Do you remember, I forgot his name. He's also a climber. Renan um, or Jimmy Chin? Jimmy Chin, yeah. Have you ever met Jimmy Chin? I I met him very briefly. I know Renan, uh, which was the other guy who did the filming in Meru. Yeah, that's cool. I'm surprised Jimmy Chin hasn't done any VR stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know it's. It's hard VR because there's no market for it, right? But that's what I kind of enjoy about it as well. You know, the filming market is very highly competitive. It's dominated by Hollywood for, you know, for better or worse. Um, and I don't know. It, for me, it's just it's a, it's a very saturated market, especially with all the online stuff we have nowadays. It's just crazy. And VR was like a breath of fresh air because no one's really shooting VR. And it just means that you can... I don't know. It just means that you can be incredibly creative and you, cause you almost have to start from scratch when you're directing and shooting VR. It's so different from traditional capture. Um, but I can understand how people are into it because there's no massive market for it. You know, i just took a massive step into the unknown and I know it's going to take another few more years of really hard work before hopefully it all really starts to pay off properly, but that's kind of the risk that I'm enjoying so far with the whole work. Um, well, it's definitely up and coming. I can tell you that much. I, I know from us building these applications, uh, it's it's up and coming. There's a lot of these companies that are looking into v, into uh, just VR experience and even AR, augmented reality as well. Uh, AR is is booming, um, and obviously, you know, AI. Uh, but AI is also just uh, a lot of people say artificial intelligence, but they don't really don't know what it means. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of funny actually, but. 
Yeah, no, that that's that's awesome, John. Um, doing doing great things, man. So, just kind of last three questions here. I always ask every interviewee is called the the uh, three hows. So, how would you, how would you define failure? How would you define business? And how would you define success? <laughs> uh, well, failure in my world would mean dying. Um, <laughs> what is how to define failure? Business would be and success. I guess, Business would be, I guess, just being able to pay the mortgage off every month. That would be good. And success is probably getting to the top of a mountain. So <laughs> I think my answers are probably a bit different from the normal ones. <laughs> no, that's good. That's, that's why I ask them. Everyone's so different. Um, so, John, where can, where can everyone find you? Um, well, um, probably on a mountain somewhere. But otherwise, I've got a couple of websites. You can Google my name. Um, and we got an Everest Virtuality website, which is pretty cool. So take a look at that. And... Yeah, if anybody wants to take a look of it uh, or interest in licensing it, do get in touch. Perfect. And the website for the uh, VR is, is everestvirtualreality.com? Exactly, yeah. And then I have a private website, jonathangriffith.co.uk. Okay. Fantastic. Well, John, uh, again, it's a, a pleasure having you on the show and, and learning about you and your story and, and just um, you know just offering all your you know, your insight on, uh, on climbing photography, VR, a bunch of different things, man. So, um, definitely learned a lot. And I think, I think, uh, everyone listening to this episode is going to, uh, really, really enjoy it. So I'm very grateful. Thank you again for being on the show and, uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And this is your host, Michael Giorgio on Tales from the Pros and until next time. Thanks guys.